persistently raises up prophets to call them back to repentance, to call them back to faithfulness to the Lord. Even the northern ten tribes who were ultimately um, destroyed were not utterly destroyed when the Assyrians carried them into captivity. And uh, the Apostle Paul, for instance, uh, was of the tribe of Benjamin um, and others. Uh, I think uh, Anna, the prophetess, was uh, of the tribe of Asher, I believe, um, and others that we see in the Bible. But, and we're told their tribe, that there still was that tribal identity that was not utterly decimated by the judgment that God brought on a very idolatrous people who had grieved him and offended him over and over. And again, with each prophet, in the, you look at the number of prophets in the Old Testament, and you have the minor prophets, the major prophets, the, you know, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. The major minor, I know you all know this, but that it's not saying how important they were, but rather the size of their prophecies. And um, all these prophets that God raised up to preach to the people, some of them contemporaries of each other, telling you that God did not give up on his people, did not turn his back on the covenant that he had made with them, did not discard them, did not. And over and over and over and over, he pleaded with them, called them to come back. Some of the prophets were very graphic in their description, and some of them, in fact, acted out certain parts of the prophecies that they were given. Ezekiel, now we won't get to it tonight. I don't think I'm going to preach it. But in Ezekiel chapter 4, God has, has him set up a tile and set up a war, like build a city on the tile and put an army around the city and enact the way uh, the, the city will be besieged, kind of like a kid might do with a Lego set or uh, build a, a little fort or something like that. And Ezekiel does that. He lays on his side for 390 days and eats a very prescribed, um, <clears throat> well, 390 days he lays on his side to represent the days that Israel will be in captivity, the ten northern tribes. And then for 40 days, he lays on the other side to depict the days that Judah will be in captivity. And during that time, he has a very prescribed diet that consists of uh, a certain ration of water and of bread. And the bread has a very specific recipe. He is to mix flour with human dung and bacon. And <clears throat> Ezekiel protests the use of human dung because it is unclean. And so God allows him to substitute human dung with cow dung. I'm sure that made it <laughs> tastier, I guess, than human dung. Um, as dung goes, I, you know, I can't say for sure, like rank the dung, uh, which would taste better, but he's doing this, you know, imagine the stench, the stink of him cooking that 
and the stench of him eating that. And he's doing this in a very public place. And many have considered Ezekiel to be very strange and odd. But God was putting on demonstrations for Israel because God is trying to appeal to Israel. Hear me. Listen to me. If you won't hear the words of my prophets, see what they do. See what they are telling you by what they do. So tonight I want to look at the commissioning of Ezekiel. We're going to read Ezekiel chapter 2 and I'm going to preach the first three chapters of Ezekiel to you all in one message. And uh, we probably, you know, if, if we're here at midnight still, please don't fall out the window. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 2, let's stand together and we'll read the first 10 verses. And I want to preach to you on this topic, whether they hear or not. Whether they hear or not. Ezekiel 2 and verse 1, these are the words of God. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou hast dwelt, thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee, be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And it was written therein, lamentations and mourning and woe. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the faithfulness of your word. And I thank you for its relevance to us today. Help us, Lord, to learn from Ezekiel what we need to know in this rebellious age. And to understand that it isn't that America is more rebellious than any other nation or any time in history. But to understand that the rebellion of man is as repulsive today as it ever was. And men will fight against you and resist you. And that we are called in our day, in our generation, to preach the truth and call men to repentance. And I pray that you would enable us to do this, empower us, embolden us for this work. 
And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I speak from experience in this. In my um, early ministry, I was excited about the call to preach because I envisioned preaching to people who would hear and would turn and would follow the Lord. And the idea of doing that was, I mean, the most exciting thing to me in the world. I've said before, I mean, I, I believe that's, that's a mark of God's calling on your life. If a guy can do anything else other than preach, he should do that and not preach. And I remember one time we were going through a specifically difficult time in the church. The first and only one, right? <laughs> and I was walking out to my car to get in and I was just weighed down with this thing. I, I'm, I'm not real sure what the thing was. You know the thing. Uh, but there was like a weight on my shoulders and I'm walking out and I'm just like my shoulders are sagging and it's early in the morning and they shouldn't be sagging that early. And I'm getting in my car and all of a sudden this thought hit me that made me laugh out loud by myself. Fortunately, no one was watching to think that I was insane. I, I laughed and I thought to myself as I opened my car door, I can still picture that. I thought, you wanted to do this. Maybe you can't appreciate that. But I'm telling you, that was a very real moment for me when I thought to myself, you wanted to do this. You wanted to be a pastor. And here you are, right? And, and actually, whatever that cloud was, I think that was the rain in the cloud. It, it actually uh, refreshed me and helped me. I say that because I... You envision, especially when you're young, you're a young man, you're coming into the ministry. I, I started pastoring here when I was um, 30 years old. <clears throat> and you're thinking to yourself, it's going to be great. People are going to hear the word. They're going to fall on their knees. They're going to cry out to God. They're gonna, their lives are going to be changed. We're going to have trophies of grace all over the place. We're going to have people and more people. And they're going to come, and, and every young pastor thinks, you know, we'll be in that building for 10 years, and then we'll build another one somewhere else and outgrow that and, and all of those things. <clears throat> I tried to put myself in Ezekiel's shoes for a minute. When I surrendered to preach, and it was a battle for me, I've told the story before, but a six-month battle, really, coming to a place where I would say, yes, Lord, I'll do this. If at that time, the Lord had said to me, now, you're going to preach and preach and preach, and nobody's going to listen to you. They're not going to convert. They're not going to hear what you say. They're not going to believe. They're not going to follow Christ. They're not going to change their ways. They're, in fact, they're going to be hard. They're going to harden their face against you. They're going to scowl at you. And they're going to reject you because of the message that you're preaching. And they're going to hate you and rebel against you. 
That's going to be your ministry. I thought to myself, I think um, I would have had second thoughts about it. You know what? Maybe you can relate this way. If I said to you, well, listen, I, we're going to have you speak publicly. Now, everybody, everybody and everybody has a fear of public speaking. There's just this innate fear that we have. So imagine we call you off the floor. You're going to come up and you're going to give a testimony, all right? And you're, I know how we think because I've been there myself. You're thinking to yourself, I don't want to say it because I don't want to stand up and I don't want to speak like that because people might not like it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a risky business getting up in front of people and speaking. When I'm coaching like our rhetoric students and talking to them about speech, I tell them, now listen, most people in the audience want you to do well, all right? It's true. You voluntarily came tonight. Everyone here, as far as I know, well, maybe some of the little kids um, didn't, but everybody else voluntarily came tonight, and I know you were hoping that pastor will say something that you will enjoy, right? Because, I mean, listening to sermons, that's an experience. You come for the experience, and what a sensational, like a roller coaster, right? It's up, it's down, it's around, it's all over the place, right? Things have happened in the last few months uh, that I can't really explain, but it's just the way it's been. The shell got old and uh, discarded. But anyway, there is a desire on the part of the listener to not be bored to tears, right? We, we generally appreciate if somebody has something to say and it's worth listening to. We like that, all right? But every public speaker has had that nightmare. Not the one where he's not wearing clothes. That one, I don't understand. I've never understood that um, at all. I, I, I don't get that. But the one where you get up and you stumble around and you can't remember what you're trying to say and you can't string it together and people are like getting up and walking out while you're speaking. Oh, that's I mean, the worst thing of all, right? So imagine as he and the Lord says to him, that's how they're going to listen to you. They're going to scowl at you. The more you say, the more angry they're going to be at you. They're going to get up and storm out in a fury. All right? That's what the Lord told Ezekiel. Look at chapter 3. And verse 4. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel 
will not hearken unto me. For they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Again, speaking from experience, after one or two tries, if I'm preaching and people are scowling and shaking their fists and making gestures at me and getting up and storming out, I'm done. I'm not going to come back and do it again another time. But God told Ezekiel that he was to do this, and Ezekiel did it not for one year or for two. Ezekiel is one of the most chronological books in the Bible. Not only is it in chronological order, all except, I think, one of his visions, but he tells you the dates of his visions many times over. He tells you the dates. For 22 years, Ezekiel preached over and over and over and over. And the people rejected his message. Now for me, <clears throat> You know, where I draw the line is, if the audience starts mocking and ridiculing the message, definitely, you know, this is going to be a one and done right here. This is going to be a one-hit wonder. But notice chapter 2 and verse 6. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee. And thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious heart, a house. The sting of ridicule can be a painful thing. The angry look quite often is enough to freeze us. I think, like I said, every pastor, myself included, begins with Visions of grandeur, great expectations. That early anticipation, I think, is a wonderful gift from God. It gives a man boldness to launch, enthusiasm for the task. But I'll tell you that in those early days, there were uh, just many visions of how things were going to be, followed by uh, reality when I would stand in the pulpit and it just felt like, Oh my, I've got to say something to everybody again tonight, and I don't know what to say. I mean, I've got it on paper, but I really don't have it ready. But we do like to plow and hope. We like to think that it's going to go well. So I imagine what it must have been like to Ezekiel to be told at his commissioning, when God separated him, to preach to the people and prophesy in his name. God told him then, at his commission, that he would preach without problem to a rebellious people who would not listen to him. Eight times in chapter 2 and chapter 3, God describes the people that Ezekiel would preach to as rebellious people. He says that they are impudent, stiff-hearted, hard-hearted. 
And with that in mind, these three first three chapters of Ezekiel repeat a theme. Ezekiel would be responsible to preach to the people to say to them, Thus saith the Lord, regardless of their response. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Then look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. Then look at chapter 3 and verse 10. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thine heart and hear with thine ears, and go get thee to them of the captivity, unto the children of thy people, and speak unto them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. And then in chapter 3 and verse 17, notice, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. So God is telling Ezekiel, it is so much your responsibility. I will hold you accountable for whether you preach to them or not. And it doesn't matter if they hear or not. You will be held responsible for delivering the message. That's what the Lord said, but that's not all. Look at chapter 3 and verse 27. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. God is telling Ezekiel, and his commissioning, he is telling him, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to receive your message. And you are to preach it to them anyway. Whether they hear or not, you are to preach it to them. That's what the Lord is saying to Ezekiel over and over again. Clearly then, 
God prepared Ezekiel, raised him up, in fact, for a lifetime of fruitless ministry. And yet, we know that obedience is never fruitless. Ezekiel was called to a ministry that would, would mean for him no visible results. But that does not mean that it would be pointless or fruitless. Because God would never send someone to do that. And when we preach and proclaim the word of God, it will never return void, though men reject it. Now the Bible tells us very little about Ezekiel the man. We know that he was both a prophet and a priest. Chapter 1, verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. He was born in the 18th year of King Josiah, the same year that Josiah discovered in the broken down temple, discovered the books of the law and read them and led the nation of Israel in a national repentance and revival. That would have been in the year 621 B.C. <clears throat> Josiah was wounded in battle, mortally wounded in battle by Pharaoh Necho at the Pass of Megiddo 12 years later in 609 B.C. The revival came to an immediate halt with the death of Josiah. The people elevated Josiah's second son, Shalom, to the throne. Shalom went by the name of Jehoahaz. After three months of reigning, Jehoahaz was deported by Pharaoh Necho to Egypt, where he lived in exile until the day of his death. Necho placed Eliakim, another son of Josiah's, on the throne as his vassal, as his servant king. Eliakim took the throne name of Jehoiakim. Necho was then defeated by Nebuchadnezzar at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. Jehoiakim immediately shifted his allegiance from Egypt to Babylon. Daniel and several other uh, prominent hostages were sent into captivity in Babylon at this time. For three years, Jehoiakim served Nebuchadnezzar. But then the Babylonian king fell on hard times and Jehoiakim thought that he saw an opportunity. He withheld the annual tribute, declared himself to be independent, and in response, Nebuchadnezzar marched against Jerusalem to punish Jehoiakim and Jerusalem. Jehoiakim either died or was assassinated right before Nebuchadnezzar arrived 
to besiege Jerusalem. His 18-year-old son, Jehoiachin, took the throne, held out against the Babylonians for three months, and then Jerusalem surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and 10,000 leading citizens of Jerusalem were carried into captivity, and among those captives was the prophet Ezekiel. Nebuchadnezzar then installed Mataniah, third son of Josiah, as his uh, serf, his vassal king in Jerusalem. And Mataniah took the throne name of Zedekiah. It was five years after Jehoiachin and the 10,000 Israelites were carried captive into Babylon that Ezekiel saw a vision. As he describes it, the heavens were open and he saw visions of God. That means right at the time when, when Ezekiel was qualified by age to become a priest, which was at the age of 30, right then God commissioned him not only to be a priest, but also to be a prophet. Now, I'm sorry, Ezekiel tells us the date when he was commissioned to be a prophet. It was the fifth day of the fourth month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. So Ezekiel had been in captivity. He went into captivity when he was 25. And he was 30 years old when he saw his vision and received his commission. It's interesting to me, but because, because Ezekiel is so precise with his dates, we can be precise as well with the date of Ezekiel's commission. <clears throat> Two men, Richard Parker and Waldo Duberstein, have done extensive work researching the years of Babylonian captivity and identifying them on the calendar. Jehoiachin came to the throne in December of 597 BC. He reigned for three months, then he was captured, deported to Babylon. The fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity in exile was 593 BC. And the fourth month was the month Tammuz. The month Tammuz begins, according to our calendar, on the 27th of July, 593 BC. So Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry on July 31st, 593 BC. We could have a celebration on July 31st every year. Ezekiel Day. <laughs> Take a holiday, take a day off, ask for it. <laughs> Besides that, we know that Ezekiel was married, that he was deeply in love with his wife, 
And in the ninth year of his captivity, four years after he was commissioned to be a prophet, his wife died. Ezekiel 24 says this, Also the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, bind a tire of thine head about upon thee, and put on thy shoes upon thy feet, and cover not thy lips, and eat not the bread of men. So I spake unto the people in the morning, and at even my wife died, and I did in the morning as I was commanded. God had this happen in Ezekiel's life as a son to the people of Israel. Needless to say, Ezekiel's prophetic commission was not a call to a life of luxury. He was not one of those sneaker preachers, you know, with the $700 tennis shoes. He wasn't one of those. He didn't, you know, like the one preacher made up for his affair by buying his wife a Lamborghini. He wasn't one of those. He wasn't a Joel Osteen. He wasn't a prosperity preacher. He summarizes, in fact, the message that he preached, the message that God gave him at the end of chapter 2 in verse 10. And he spread it before me, that is the scroll that was written on both sides, which tells you that God had a lot to say against Israel. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. I know that we crave a positive message, right? But Ezekiel was not given a positive sermon to preach. Oh, not until the end of the book, and then God began to tell Israel of a coming day of restoration. But Ezekiel was sent to prophesy at a time when Israel desperately needed a prophet, and God told him that by preaching the word, whether they heard it or not, they would know that there was a prophet in Israel. That's what God called him to do. None of us are called to this kind of prophetic office, and yet all of us are called to proclaim and preach and declare the glory of God, the word of God to a people who largely will not hear us. And as we go, we must not count the cost. The question that comes to my mind is, how could Ezekiel do this? I know that for myself, humanly speaking, the desire for success, visible results, the desire for things to go well is always there, always in my mind. I, it's impossible, I think, to be a pastor and not feel that desire. And I thought to myself, if 
at my commissioning, if at the beginning of my ministry I had been told in some way God had sent me a message and said, it will all come to nothing. It will all fail and fall short. Would I have done it? How could I have done it? That's discouraging enough, honestly. I mean, I don't talk about it, but if the attendance is a little low, I don't even look at the attendance like the numbers. I can just see it like visibly in here in a bunch of empty spots out there. That's discouraging. Like sometimes I go home and I'm just like crushed. I don't talk about it, but I, it's awful. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. But for Ezekiel to know that it's not going to get better. It's not going to improve. How could he do it? God told him to preach. But how could he preach? Seeing the rebellion of the people. Their faces turned against him. The hardness of their hearts. Their refusal to listen. How could he do it? The same thing that made Ezekiel bold to preach in his day will make us bold to preach in our day. A fresh vision of the glory of God, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit of God, and appropriating the Word of God to ourselves first, and then obediently proclaiming it to the people. Those are the things that will sustain us in difficult and disappointing days. A fresh vision of the glory of God, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit of God, and appropriating the Word of God to ourselves first before proclaiming it to the people. That's what will sustain us in days of disappointment, in days when we preach and preach and preach and no one responds. Ezekiel chapter 3 says it this way in verse 10, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thine heart and hear with thine ears and go get thee to them in the captivity unto the children of thy people, and speak unto them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear. Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels over against them, and a noise of a great rushing. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv, that dwelt by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. Now this passage, what I just read, verses 10 through 15, is the formal launching of the prophetic ministry of Ezekiel 
And notice what God said to him, because the three points that I gave you there came from those verses. A fresh vision of the glory of God. The felt presence, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit of God and appropriating the Word of God to ourselves before we declare it to others. <clears throat> I'm going to take you through each one of these, beginning with the glory of God. It was not through reason, one commentary said, or cold logic, or contemplation of long-term benefits that Ezekiel sensed his prophetic calling. It was because he had glimpsed the awesomeness and majesty of God. The commands of God are easier to follow when we contemplate who has issued them. So look again at Ezekiel 3 and I want you to notice a, a strange, mysterious thing that is said, and I believe it's in verse 11, verse 10. No, no, verse 12, 13. We'll get it. I heard also, verse 13, the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels over against them and a noise of great rushing. <clears throat> Ezekiel opens this book by telling us in verse 1 of chapter 1, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, the fourth month, and the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel's vision, which is described for us in Ezekiel chapter 1, included five things, all of them unspeakably glorious and majestic. First of all, Ezekiel noticed a great storm cloud. The cloud was full of lightning and symbolized God's judgment against Israel. Notice verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself. There's the lightning. And a brightness was about it. You can see the lightning flashing inside of that cloud, and the, the glow from outside of that cloud. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. This glowing metallic object as the color of amber in the midst of that storm cloud was a glorious, fabulous sight. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a cow's foot, 
and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. And their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another. And two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward. Whither the spirit was to go, they went. And they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. And like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So in the middle of this storm cloud, full of lightning, in the midst of it, is this fiery, burning, metallic, object and <clears throat> Ezekiel narrows his focus and zooms in to that object and there he sees four cherubim they have the features of a man but their head has a face on each side the front is the face of a man the right side is the face of, let me look at it again. The right side is the face of an ox, I believe. The left side is the face of a lion. <clears throat> and in the rear is the face of an eagle. I'm sorry, the face of the lion is on the right, the face of the ox on the left. So their head is these four faces. Their legs are straight legs, no, no knees, no ankles. Their feet are like the feet of a calf. By the way, those who are, I don't know, Christians who are against any kind of fantasy writing should probably read their Bible a little more. And these are fantastical creatures, these cherubim. And they have four wings. Two upper and two lower, and they have hands below the wings. <clears throat> and the Bible describes these. They don't turn when they go because they have faces and eyes all around so that they never have to turn their head. But whatever direction they're going, they are able to face in that direction. And the faces are the faces of a man and a lion and an ox and an eagle. <clears throat> These are the faces of the highest in rank of each order in the created world, the world of creatures. Man is, of course, the highest of all creation. The lion is the king of the wild beasts. The ox is the greatest, the superior of all the domestic animals. I'm sorry for you who love horses. 
or a dog. <coughs> but that's what God says, not me. You know, don't shoot the messenger. <clears throat> and the eagle is the king of the birds of the air, the fowl of the air. They have the speed of lightning. And the spirit of these living beings, the spirit of these cherubim, directed them as they went. Two of their wings covered their naked bodies. The other two wings were for flying. But it was the strangest sight that you would ever see. Because the wings were all attached to each other. Each wing attached to the wing of another cherubim so that they formed a square. And when they flew, they flew like a square. Thirdly, each of these cherubim had a wheel next to them. This wasn't just any wheel, not like a car wheel. Ezekiel makes us know that the wheels were designed to move in any direction. Third, in geometric terms, the wheels bisected each other at right angles so that the cherubim could move wherever they were sent, much like a ball bearing. The wheels were huge, terrifying, and, the Bible says, full of eyes within and without. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel, that is, topaz. And they four had one likeness, and their appearances and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go. And the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was them. Like men, straight legs, no joints, feet like calves' feet, wings attached to each other so that they form a square. And they have these wheels that look like, the Bible says, a wheel in a wheel, right? And the rings are very high. So in other words, the wheel is a very high wheel. Like think of a monster truck, only a monster truck tire that can go in any direction that it wants to. It's not attached to an axle in any way. And whatever way they go, their spirit tells them to go, they go that way. And they can turn without any kind of steering mechanism. They can go and they fly. Fourthly, there was a firmament above the heads of these four living creatures. Again, think of them as a truck with a flat bed, no cab, no steering wheel. There are these four cherubim joined at the wing, 
with their wheels, and above them is this platform, this firmament, above the heads of these four living creatures. And this stretched out expanse resembled an enormous, glittering, crystal platform. And the throne of God rested on top of it. And the likeness of the firmament upon the creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above, and under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Everyone had two which covered on this side, and everyone had two which covered on that side, their bodies. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. When they stood, they let down their wings, and there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. Now think about this. <clears throat> Where we live, uh, there's, a, there's a little uh, retention pond, and the Canadian geese all fly there, I assume, for many generations. They have flown there and laid their eggs and, and used it as a stopping place on their winter trek and then their spring trek. And somewhere around October or November, all of a sudden, we will be invaded by Canadian geese. There will be hundreds of them out there in that retention pond. And in the mornings, they make a huge racket before they take off. And uh, you'll hear them all talking and calling to each other and squawking. And then a humongous, sometimes, flock of these um, Canadian geese will fly just right over our house. And so low that you can hear their wings flapping. You can hear the, the wind. Their wings, but... <laughs> these cherubim, and the Bible describes when they flap their wings... The sound is not like the sound of the ocean against the shore, the sound of a raging river, the sound of the voice of God. And God sits on that platform, on his throne. By the way, you have these creatures cherubim, pure angels, their faces representing the highest form of each kind of creature in the world. And God is exalted above them. They are beneath them, serving his purpose. Think of the symbol in that. God sits on that throne, displaying his dominion over all the creatures of the earth. God, high and lifted up, above all that is in the earth, and yet directing at the same time all that is in the earth. Fifth, and most importantly, the throne that sat on this platform is none other than the throne of God. And sitting on that throne is the majesty of the heavens, Almighty God. And it is at this point, after all the extensive description that Ezekiel has given us of the cherubim and of the firmament, the, the platform <coughs> above the cherubim and the wheels. Words fail to describe the glory of the God that's on that throne. Now, 
the logic of what Ezekiel is sharing with us should not be missed. Because Ezekiel means to say that the being who sits on a throne that is carried the way that throne is carried by creatures more glorious and more frightening than anything you and I can ever imagine. The one who sits on the throne carried by those creatures must be far, far, far more glorious than those that carry him. <clears throat> and I saw, verse 27, chapter 1, I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within him, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one whispering. Remember that hymn? Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. The reason we can't see God is because the brightness of his countenance is so intense that we cannot look at it. The Bible tells us that there was such a radiance and that on the external edges of that radiance there was a rainbow of colors surrounding the one who sat on the throne. Now I'm telling you Ezekiel goes to a lot of trouble to describe this vision to us. And the reason he does is because when you see it when you imagine standing in the presence of such majesty, of such glory, of such awesome brightness, you lose all your fear of man. In that moment, you lose all your fear of man. You lose all your concern about your status you lose all your concern about your own reputation, about your own reception with people. You lose all concern for anything to do with self because you become enraptured with the glory of the one who has displayed himself. That's what I mean. The reason why Ezekiel was not troubled or turn back from his commission, his prophetic ministry. The reason it did not disturb him, did not bother him, did not discourage him, preach and preach and preach 